We shall turn now to the Word of God, to the chapter read, and we shall continue to consider the opening of the seals. The Lamb in the midst of the throne has taken the book out of the hand of him who sat on the throne and is now engaged in opening the seals to unfold the content of uh, this book. And uh, we have considered particularly the first five seals that were opened and mentioned, the sixth seal, so that when we come to chapter 7, we're at that point where six of the seals have been opened And we have a summary then of particular events that were in the purpose of God and in connection with the redemption of his people. Now, when we come to chapter 8, verse 1, we read, And when he had opened the seventh seal. So chapter 7 here comes between the opening of the sixth seal and the opening of the seventh seal, and it is very informative, and we can see when we read it why it is necessary to have this chapter between the opening of these uh, seals. John says in verse 1, After these things I saw after the opening of the sixth seal. Now, just to refresh our memories, the, uh, John says in verse 9, when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God, and so on. And God responds then to these who are so near to the throne. They have been martyred for the sake of the gospel, for the word of God, and for the testimony that they held. Now, when you go back in the book to the first chapter to discover where John is actually receiving these visions, you will see that in the verse 9 of chapter 1, he says, I, John, also, who am also... I'm your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. So although John has not been martyred, like, for example, James and his own brother James and uh, Paul and Peter and so on, yet he is part of the suffering church of Jesus Christ at the time. And he makes it clear that, he says, he is a companion in tribulation and in the kingdom, and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the one kingdom that he directs us to pray for, 
Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Jesus went about preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Now, very often we will hear expressions about the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of grace, the gospel of salvation, and very little reference is made apart from the cults to the gospel of the kingdom. And yet that's what Jesus preached. And John the Baptist introduced preaching of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom. And here John is suffering for the gospel of the kingdom. And he's part of the suffering kingdom of Jesus Christ. Now, as we said at earlier stages, the whole purpose of this book is to encourage the suffering and afflicted church of Jesus Christ. Now, as these seals are being opened, it does not appear that there is very much relief in store for the saints of God. Because, as we've already noted, those who were, the souls of those who were crying from under the altar, how long they were asking, O Lord, holy and true, Dost thou not judge and avenge our blood and them that dwell in the earth? Now, without trying to uh, write more in than it ought to be there, it would seem that these saints who are in heaven, who are in the presence of God, they are the martyrs of Jesus Christ, They are aware of what's going on in the earth, the suffering church. They're aware of the sufferings, the persecution of the church on earth. And they are concerned that God does not appear presently to be avenging the blood of his saints so that they are told they are to rest for a while And uh, they were to do this until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. Fulfilled. It was clear to John that persecution still lay ahead of the church. It was clear to John that the tribulation of the church had not yet ended. There were going to be more martyrs. There was going to be more suffering for the word of God and for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now then, when the sixth seal is opened, things begin to appear clear to John that God is going to avenge his church and his beloved son and his church in his own appointed time. 
He will not avenge until the fulfillment has been completed of the ingathering of all the saints and all the sufferings that are required are at an end. And John beheld, verse 12, I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth, and so on. And we pointed out that here is a most unnatural, as it were, upheaval throughout the whole universe depicted here. Uh, There are strange events. These, of course, are symbolic statements, symbolic terms. They are symbols of realities. And in the Old Testament, as we've already noted, (coughs) in the prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Joel and so on, they were shown the upheaval that God purposed among the nations of men as kingdoms would rise and kingdoms would fall and uh, so on. There would be great disturbances among men in judgment. And in the Closing part of the chapter 6, we have the scene where the Lamb is now expressing his wrath. The Lamb that bled, the Lamb that suffered, the Lamb that atoned for the sins of his people is now expressing and exhibiting his wrath. Note the response of those who are to be the recipients of this wrath. The great day, verse 17, of his wrath is come. It has come at last. We didn't think it was coming. We didn't imagine it would ever come. But God has responded to the cries and the prayers of his martyr church. And God has arisen to avenge the blood of his people. And they haven't departed, we're told, as a scroll and so on. And then verse 15, well, you can imagine if these, if this is symbolic language. What is the reality to be like? These are just symbols to convey a message, to convey to John that when God arises, his wrath is going to be terrible. Though he is so long-suffering and he is so patient, When the day of his wrath eventually comes, what are men going to feel like? Are they going to mock? Are they going to laugh? Are they going to sneer? We're told the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bond man and every free man 
hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains. What were they saying? To the mountains and the rocks, they become almost insane. You imagine the state and the condition of any man's mind who thinks that he can call on the rocks and the mountains to hide him from God. Men are so desperate to escape from God. So desperate to escape from the wrath of the Lamb that they are here calling on the rocks and the mountains to actually hide them. A vain prayer it is. They didn't pray before and now they cannot dare to pray to God. They're actually praying to the rocks and the mountains. They didn't pray to idols They didn't pray to the false gods. But now they're praying to the rocks and the mountains. They are so desperate for any escape. And why? Because the great day of his wrath is come. And the question that this chapter concludes with is this. And... Who shall be able to stand? It's a rhetorical question. As though the answer is there. No one. No one can possibly stand in that day before that wrath. And yet... When we come to chapter 7, what do we read? After these things, I saw four angels standing in the four corners of the earth. After I'd seen this, I saw something else. I saw four angels at the four corners of the earth. Remember, this is a vision. This is not literal. This is a vision. The angels of God are holding back the four winds. You read through the scriptures, you will see the references to the north wind and the south wind and the wind from the east and so on. And the Jews believed, you see, that each of these winds had its own particular significance. But here, the four winds are being held, as it were, in restraint so that they should not blow in the earth nor on the sea nor on any tree. These are devastating powers that are the command of the one who's in the throne. Note verse 2. I saw another angel ascending from the east having the seal of the living God And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given. Now, we've noted that expression before. What was given to the horses and the riders? The power that was given to them. It was given to them from the throne. And here is power given to the winds. From the throne. To do what? 
to hurt the earth and the sea and the trees, in other words, to upset man's conditions, to change conditions for men. Judgments are coming. That's what John was seeing, these mighty winds of judgment. You can go to the Old Testament and you can find in various places where the winds were sent by God to disturb kingdoms and upset kings and so on. These are the winds of divine judgment because God is the avenger of his people and the blood of his people. But then, when, and we look at it shortly, the numbering of the twelve tribes of Israel. Notice what it says, Hurt not, verse 3, the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till, oh yes, they're going to be hurt. These mighty winds are going to be released. In all their fury they'll be released to exercise their mighty power. But not yet. Hurt not. You wait for the command from the throne. Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. Something must be done first. Those who are the people of God, the servants of God, And you look back and verse 11, what was John said? There's going to be still fellow servants of the martyred and they've still to suffer and they've still to die and there's still to be affliction for the church. But God is going to take care of his church and he's going to take care of his people. Paul tells Timothy, the Lord knoweth them that are his. And he has a mark on every one of his children. He knows his sheep. He calls them by name. They all have a personal identity with him. And here we are told that these winds are not to start their destructive work until all of the servants of God, his people, are identified and marked uh, by God. Now, then there is this numbering of the tribes, 12,000 each, out of each of the tribes, 140 and 4,000. But then in verse 9, What does John say? After this I beheld, and lo, and lo, it seemed so outstanding, incredibly remarkable. After this I beheld a sight that was most remarkable. And lo, 
And lo, a great multitude which no man could number. Oh, the tribes are numbered. 12,000 out of this tribe, 12,000 out of that tribe. And here is a number then that can't be numbered. Where are they from? They're not out of the 12 tribes. They're out of the nations and kindreds and people and tongues. What do we read now? Stood before the throne and before the Lamb. What's the question at the end of chapter 6? The great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? Little wonder, John says, I beheld, and lo, what a remarkable sight. You couldn't even number. These great numbers, where are they? They're standing before the throne and they're standing before the Lamb. How is it? How is it that the question is, who can stand? And here are these innumerable multitudes and they're standing. Well, look at what what the reason for it is. Verse 13, one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes, and whence came they? These before the throne. How did they come? How were they able to stand? How were they able to stand before the Lamb? Why is it they're not calling on the rocks and the mountains? Why is it that they're not trying to escape and hide? I said... These are they which have come out of great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God and serve him. That's the difference. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. It's the blood of the Lamb that makes the difference. The blood of atonement. Those who are calling on the rocks and the mountains have no atonement. They have no blood to atone for their sins. They are meeting the day of divine wrath, the wrath of the Lamb that they despised. The Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. They have rejected him, they've mocked him, they've despised him, they've persecuted him and his people. But there were those who discovered themselves to be poor sinners, in need of an atonement, in need of being justified before God. And where did they go in their need? They went to the blood. They sought the atonement that had been made for sin. And there now, John sees them standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And my dear friends, we've already noted in the past, What was to happen in 70 A.D.? Because 
They trample the blood of atonement, the Son of God, under their feet. These things that were to happen, Jesus said, would happen before this whole generation will pass away. Happening as a solemn warning to Christ's rejecters for every generation to come. Now, in order to fully understand what we have here in chapter 7, Let's remind ourselves of what we've already noted. Jesus himself was asked the question back in Matthew chapter 24 by his disciples, when are these things going to happen, the destruction of this temple, and when shall be the end of the world or the end of the age? And Jesus uh, told them, that they were not to be led astray by false, by claims of false Christs and so on. And he said there would arise false Christs and there would arise false prophets and uh, all kinds of events would take place, signs in heaven and signs on earth and so on. And Jesus warned them that they were not his people, those who would heed his warnings, would flee from Jerusalem. It is a mighty strange prediction, and yet it has its own significance. Right from the beginning of the establishment of the nation of Israel, what did God tell them to do He told them to go to Jerusalem. He told them they were to go four times in the years, uh, four times in the year they were to appear before God. And yet, Jesus himself warns in Matthew 24 and of course in Luke and Mark as well that it was their wisdom to flee even from the surrounding areas, because great destruction was on its way. And the day of divine wrath was going to descend on those who said, His blood be upon us. And they didn't stop there. And upon our children. And as Spurgeon said, as we told you, never in history did any people ever act so very brazenly foolishly. Never did any people bring such a curse upon them. We live in days when because of false interpretations of Scripture and all the dispensational teaching that's around There's sentimental statements about the Jews and about the nation of Israel and all kinds of unbiblical attitudes. And the focus is on Israel rather than on Christ. And you would think that we have to be more concerned 
about the sufferings of a nation of people than we ought ever to be about the Son of God. Now, do not get me wrong. We ought to be sympathetic. And we ought to be concerned about this ancient people, this nation that God established as a people for himself. And as Paul says, they have the advantage in that the oracles were established among them. They don't have the advantage because they've got some special geographical area to call their home. They don't have uh, special privileges because they're the seed of Abraham in the flesh. What advantage hath the Jew? That's the straightforward question. What advantage? Well, won't Paul tell us? Of course he does. They had the oracles committed to them. That's what makes them different. That's what gives them the advantage. They had the oracles, the word of God committed to them. No other nation had the word of God. No other people had the oracles, had the word of God, had the law of God. They had it. Why did they have it? To become a blessing to the nations. And God saw perfectly well that they failed. Did they fail the nations of the Gentiles? They failed him. They failed God. Now, we mentioned the fact of a new world. Peter tells us of the old world before the flood. The old world became, in a sense, the new world. But there was a greater change to take place. The world was to experience the greatest change in its history when the Son of God in our nature came into this world. Everything changed. You go to the epistle to the Hebrews in the first chapter, you have there Paul reminding us of the introduction of the Son of God into this world of sin and woe. Little wonder the angels sang in the heavens, glory to God and peace on earth and goodwill toward men. Why? Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6, verse 5, so that there's no mistake about it, unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, This day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, 
He saith, and let all the angels of God worship him. Thou art my son, my only begotten son, my first begotten. Now he bringeth him into the world. God manifest in the flesh. Here is a wonderful new beginning as it were. Now let's understand then what's taking place. When Paul is writing to the Corinthians in the 15th chapter of that epistle, he makes a distinction between the first Adam and the last Adam. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45, so it is written, The first man, Adam, was made a living soul. Where are we going here? We're going back to the first creation. We're going back to the creation At the very beginning of Genesis, God created the universe out of nothing. He created this world to be inhabited by men. And he created the first Adam. Then we're told the last Adam was made a quickening spirit. The first Adam, first man, Adam, was made a living soul. God breathed into him, and man became a living soul. And the last Adam was made a quickening spirit. The first man, verse 47, is of the earth, earthy, and the second man is the Lord from heaven. Now keep that in mind. Let's go back to the beginning and see what actually the Word of God tells us happens. Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. How did he do it? Verse 2. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and... The Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Note that. The Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. Now let's go over to the gospel according to Luke, to the first chapter. And we come now to another time we've been at the creation where the first Adam was made. Now we're coming to another creation where the last Adam is to be made. What do we read Luke chapter 1 and uh, verse 31, Behold, uh, 
Thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And we noted last week, the throne occupied by the Lamb is the throne of David. The earthly throne was but the type. David has not ascended on high, uh, we read in Hebrews, but Christ has ascended. He shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Now what's the response of Mary? Mary then said, Mary, unto the angel, How shall this be? Seeing I know not a man, how can this be? The angel answered and said unto her, Where are we going now? Where do we link up now here to Genesis 1? The Spirit of God was hovering over the darkness and over the deep. What happens here? The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee, Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. What a miracle this is. We go back to the creation, the first creation, which includes, of course, the making of the first Adam. Here is the making of Of the last Adam, God manifest in the flesh. I tell you, if men don't believe that God created the world as he did out of nothing, well, it's most unlikely they're ever going to believe that God sent his Son into this world in the form and in the manner in which he did. The same Spirit that brought out of the chaotic scene the cosmos, the order. Mary is told that same spirit that introduced that mighty work and God said, let there be light. That same Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee, just as he did at the beginning. And the holy thing which shall be born of thee. It was much easier for God to create everything at the beginning out of nothing than to create this holy thing in the womb of a fallen sinful woman. This is the the work of the mighty Spirit of God in the making of the last Adam so that you have the two creations 
side by side you have uh, the word of God focusing on these two mighty works of God. Now then, if we don't understand these things, we are not going to understand what happens in the book of the Revelation, very particularly in the chapter 7. Here is John seeing the fruit, the outcome, the consequences of the introduction to this world of the last Adam, the second man from heaven. Now, when we come back to the uh, book of the Revelation, to, to the chapter 7, as we said, there is a mark put on all the servants of God so that they will not, uh, they will be identified and they will be preserved and they will be protected and kept during these times of great destructive power and energy at work. But you will note something. If you go, for example, to Numbers chapter 2 and again to Numbers chapter 10, you will see there the tribes of the Israel, the national Israel, you will see them mentioned. And you will see there that God appointed an order, an order for them to camp and an order for them to move. And they were to move exactly in the order that God ordained to them. Now, the strange thing when we come to Revelation 7 is this. We have an entirely different order. And in fact, we don't have the same names. It's a different order. And they are different names. And yet, we are told that this is the all the tribes, verse uh, 4, uh, Forty uh, and four thousand of all the tribes of the children of Israel. And we might say, well, let's go back to Numbers and let's see all the tribes of the children of Israel. And then we come, well, there's something wrong here. There are two names missing. The tribe of Dan isn't mentioned here at all. And the tribe of Ephraim isn't mentioned either. And yet there's all the tribes of the children of Israel. So what's gone wrong? Well, you see, there was to be a promised seed and the Israel of God was to be the product, as it were, of the promised seed. And Dan and Ephraim, by the way, were the two tribes that introduced and established idolatry amongst the tribes of Israel. And you look later at chapter 21 and 22, when we come to it, idolaters 
were outside. They were not allowed into the kingdom of heaven. Without were dogs and sorcerers and adulterers and idolaters. And so they could not be included in reality. But because the order has changed, the names are changed, and yet this is the whole tribes of the children of Israel, what must we gather from it? These represent the spiritual seed. These represent the true Israel. Paul said, not all that are of Israel are Israel. They are not all Jews that call themselves Jews, he said. This is the spiritual Israel of God. The tribes, the spiritual Israel, 144,000. Now the Jehovah's Witnesses, of course, they have their own interpretation of these uh, verses. And they will say that Uh, Back, I think it was 1938, either 1935 or 38, they said that the uh, 144,000 were completed. And they'll all be in heaven. But then after that, the rest of the Jehovah's Witnesses, who are faithful and true to their faith, well, they'll all be the godly on the earth. They won't get into heaven, but they will have a very enjoyable experience on earth. There's no biblical teaching for it, but that's their teaching. Then the dispensationists. And this is again one of the false teachings about the Jews. They believe the 144,000 represents the ethnic Jews who would turn to Christ after the great tribulation. And they would be the, or after the coming of the Lord, I should say, and they are going to be the witnesses. The rapture will take place, but they will be redeemed. They'll turn to Christ, and they will be his witnesses. None of these have any biblical foundation. What John is seeing is the redemption, or the redeemed rather, the number that are sealed. Sealed by the Holy Spirit. Sealed as the people of Christ. To be before the throne. Gathered as the true Israel of God. You go to Galatians chapter 6 verse 16. Paul writes there, And it's clear in the context that when he refers to the Israel of God, it's the spiritual Israel, the Israel of those who are trusting in Christ. But then look at what John has to say here after the numbering of these 144,000. And this I beheld. And lo, a great multitude, which no man could number. Now, where have they come from? They're not, it seems, from these twelve tribes. 
They're not from that national church of Jesus Christ. But they are from all nations and kindreds and people and tongues and so on. They are innumerable. The great gathering of God's redeemed people from the Gentile world, from the nations and the kindreds and the tongues and the peoples, they can't even be numbered. What a sight for John. The Isle of Patmos. And he's written to the seven churches and the state they're in. And the church is being persecuted and it is weak. And it seems the enemies of Christ and of the gospel and of the church are triumphing. And the Gentiles, what is to become of them? The gospel will never reach them. The Romans are going to make sure that that doesn't happen. What does John see? A great number that cannot even be numbered. What a success for the gospel. What a triumph for Jesus Christ when he sends his poor servants out, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature and lo, I am with you always. And he gathers this great number and they are before the throne. They're not crying like idolaters in their ignorance to the rocks and the mountains. You think of the nations of the earth in their ignorance, their spiritual blindness and darkness and ignorance. What do they resort to whenever unusual events would happen in the heavens, volcanoes, eruptions, floods, and all kinds of events, they turn to their idols. But here is a people out of idolatry, out of heathenism, and there before the throne, washed in the blood of the Lamb. The robes are white. They've left all their heathenism, all their ungodliness, all their idolatry. It's all gone and they are trusting in Christ. And John must have been mighty encouraged to think the church isn't going to die. It may be persecuted. There may be many more martyrs to come. But the gospel is going to succeed. Now, of course, when we go back, and again, here's the true church the true redeemed church. When you go back to Genesis, back to chapter 15 to begin with, you have there in verse uh, 5, you have God's promise to Abraham. Here's what God said to Abraham, verse 5 of Genesis 15. He brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. 
And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. Look at them stars, Abraham. Can you count them? Can you number them? Of course, Abraham knew he couldn't. Abraham, that's how innumerable your seed is going to be. That must have been an incredible thing for Abraham uh, to uh, think of. But you will see again in the same book of Genesis, in the chapter 22, here's the blessing that God promises to Abraham, verse 17, verse 16, by myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. What seed? Well, Paul makes it clear, one seed, the seed was Christ, but the seed is the godly, the spiritual seed. And the nations are going to be blessed through that spiritual seed, Abraham. And the blessing will be so great, Abraham, that there'll be a number before the throne. They will be delivered from the wrath of the Lamb because they'll be trusting in the blood of atonement and they will be before the throne. In the epistle to the Hebrews, you have there in chapter 11, again, uh, verse, uh, well, for the sake of time, from verse 8 down, speaking of the faith of Abraham, and there, <coughs> verse 12 then, therefore, because of his faith, therefore sprang there even of one, and him as good as dead so many as the stars of the sky in multitude, and as the sand which is by the seashore innumerable. What are we seeing? You remember last week, we pointed out some of the references where God was remembering his covenant. The Sabbath speaks of God remembering his covenant. David the covenant that was ordered and all things ensure. That was his great comfort when his family was in a low state. Here, what are we seeing? We mentioned the fact the throne that Christ is now seated in is the throne of his covenant, the throne of grace, and the throne of mercy. Here around that throne are, are Abraham's seed. These are the real Jews. This is the real Israel of God. This is the true church of Jesus Christ. Now we will have to explain 
other aspects of these matters later, but that's where we are just now in this chapter 7. The protection of Christ's church, whatever else happens, persecution, affliction, the nations in a turmoil, everything upset in the uh, ways and lives of men, but the church kept by divine power unto the day of redemption. And you see, unless, unless we understand the real nature of the covenant that God made with Abraham, we're going to go astray and askew when it comes to the New Testament. And we have an understanding there of the relationship between the National Church of Israel and the Universal Church of the Seed of Abraham. And here we see the wonder of it. John must have marveled at it. Thought of his nation and its history. And here he's hearing the believers there can actually be numbered. Now that's a symbolic uh, figure, of course, but they can be numbered. But the gospel is going to have such success that before the throne there will be a people that were promised to Abraham. And they won't even be, and they won't even be able to be numbered. What a glorious God and what a glorious Savior, what a glorious gospel. Little wonder Paul said, I am not ashamed of that gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. Here you see in this chapter seven, the love of God for the church, marking every one of his sins, that not one of them will perish. But you see, the, all these centuries later, God faithful to his word, what he promised Abraham, John sees, my, why would he not believe the Bible? When he would see this, he would know God is worth trusting. God is reliable. His word stands every generation. But we shall leave it there. May the Lord bless to us his word. Most holy and eternal God, we thank thee that in the midst of all the confusion we have the word of God, reliable, down through the centuries, trustworthy. God's word, the word that we can trust and believe and rely upon. Oh, forbid, we pray, that we would ignore it or neglect it or despise it or reject it. Oh, may we see with the eye of faith, the faithfulness of God, the great salvation that will save a number that no man can number and bring them in robes of righteousness before the throne of God. Bless us, pardon us, accept us, 
For Christ's sake. Amen.